Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll be joined today by Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who'll talk with us about what is going on in Washington post-impeachment and about what we're seeing in the Democratic presidential primaries as they make their way toward Michigan. And can we finally change the primary system to be fairer to voters in states like ours? That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. There's a lot happening in our world and, of course, in Washington and in Congress. And here to break down for us some of the biggest headlines in the news and to talk about the latest goings-on in Washington and around the country is an old favorite here on Detroit Today, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, a Democrat from Dearborn who represents Michigan's 12th Congressional District. Debbie, welcome back to the studio. Thank you, Stephen. It is great to be here. And to you and to everyone listening, Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Day. That's right. Uh, one of the one of the sweeter holidays that we have <laughs> during the year. Uh, it's always great to have you here in Detroit as well. I know you come back frequently. Um, uh, let's start with what is going on in Washington, though. The the impeachment trial, of course, was historic in in the sense that you know it's not something that happens all the time. Uh, we also saw some extraordinary behavior, I think, by Republicans, both in the House and in the Senate, and by the White House itself. I'm really curious, the day after all of that ends and you go back to work in the U.S. Congress, uh, what is it like? I mean, does it feel as though the world has ended and all of the relationships that you had with people across the aisle are somehow damaged? Or do people just move on? So it's been a very complicated two weeks, three weeks. Uh, um, Last week, when I I really truly do believe that the last week, although this week didn't help much, uh, was one of the saddest uh, weeks that I've had in my career. Not only my congressional career, but just for the country in the last decades of working. Uh, I sat on the floor the night of the State of the Union, which was a union was not a speech that brought us together. No, no. And I wasn't turned to, to No, it wasn't intended. But I turned to my colleague who I was sitting next to on the floor and said, this isn't good for anybody. I, I, it wasn't good for the Democrats any better than it was for the Republicans. It was a very difficult night. The State of the Union has become uh, an exercise in something anyway over the last few years. And I always think of that night I go back to a cheerleading, you know, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. You don't know when you're supposed to. You know, everybody's looking at you. I mean, forget this year. It's just a challenge. Uh, and you want to be, I wanted to be respectful. I mean, there were two articles in the Washington Post the same night. Uh, all, most Democrats remain seated, except for Debbie Dingell, who the president had and who was moderate. So that was there. But then there was another article that described me the way I was sitting um, without an effect in my face, but uh, I, I don't even know who I, writes things yeah, like what does that this, mean, right? but then said that um, I was control- clearly blinking my eyes in a controlled manner, trying to keep the daggers from coming from my eyes. So I was like, well, I guess I have two different <laughs> sentences for whoever. But I mean, but the fact that reporters are even covering it like that, that's not good for this country. That division is not okay. And it made me very sad. And I said that at the end of the week. I just wanted to get home. I do come home every weekend. Mm-hmm. I come home because that city is so filled with fear and hate and division. I need to just get out and be with the people I represent. I call them real people. Yeah. I mean, I just want to come home. 
But we got to worry about what's happening in this country. We are being divided as a country. And this is not paranoia. We need to understand that Russia is trying to divide us as a country. And we all need to think about the division we are feeling in this country right yeah. now. So, so give us a sense of what it was like on the floor in the House during the State of the Union. A lot of Democrats said, I'm not even going because I don't want to be part of this show. I don't want to, I don't want to sort of imply that this is okay with my, with my presence. You were there. What, what was it like? So first of all, people need to know who I am. And I go, if there is a joint session of Congress, the people of my district elected me to serve. And I think unless there are extenuating circumstances, you go. I got attacked a number of years ago for going, you know, from some members of my Arab community when the Israel um, prime minister was there, but uh, there, but, and I told him, I go, I don't agree with him. You know, it's, that night was, the tension in that room was, you could cut it. And yet I'd many good friends on the Republican side as well. And I have spent more, a Republican said to me, while I was over there, I said, oh, Democrats are coming back over here now because the impeachment's over. And I said, I never stopped coming over here. <laughs> I used to spend more time over here than I did on the Democratic side to begin with. And he looked at me and he said, you are right, you have. And so, you know, I, I have done that before and I'll do that again. But that night was very, I mean, I felt it, that it wasn't good for the country. I think the moment that bothered me more than anything was when the president said that he was doing everything that he could to protect people with pre-existing conditions. When we know that he's in court right now trying to take away protections. Undermining that, right? Undermining it, has repealed it. At, and you don't. One of the things is how do we talk to people about what's really happening? You know, he said he would protect Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and yet we get a budget that would take $1.6 trillion out of those programs. But I don't want to get into a tit to a tat. Mm -hmm. That's part of the problem right now. But we really are protecting some very fundamental things in this country, and quite frankly, they are so fundamental that we are protecting freedom of religion. We are protecting freedom of speech. We are protecting freedom of the press. And I never thought at this point in my life that fundamental principles of our democracy would be under attack the way they are. Mm. Uh, my guest is Debbie Dingell, a Democrat from Dearborn who represents Michigan's 12th congressional district in Congress. We're talking about what's going on in Washington post-impeachment. Uh, is there an opportunity perhaps to put some of the bitterness aside that we saw during the impeachment trial and then again on display during the State of the Union and try to get some of the nation's business done. Um, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what your reaction is to everything that's happening in Washington right now. Do you think pursuing impeachment was the right decision for Democrats? And now that the Senate trial is over, what do you think will happen next? Also, what's your reaction to the controversy with the Department of Justice and President Trump's interference for shorter sentences for some of his friends? That's something else we're going to talk about in a little bit. Also, give us a call and tell us what you think of the Democratic presidential primary so far. We're also going to talk with Debbie about that. Uh, just a few weeks now before we get to ballot here in Michigan in that contest. Uh, what's on your mind about what's happened so far? What do you think about the process that we indulge every four years to try to choose nominees on the Republican and, and Democratic side? Do you think it's something that should change? Should Michigan's place in all of this be different than what it is? Should it be earlier or should it maybe be later? Uh, if uh, again, if you want to join the conversation, the number on the phones is always is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll uh, work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to listeners, Debbie, I want to talk about what you think might be next in Washington is there an opportunity to get some things done, even as a demonstration, perhaps, that 
the whole thing is not broken? I mean, do you do you have enough people on both sides who could say, yeah, it's an election year. Yeah, we just had this really bitter proceeding in the House and Senate, but let's show people that uh, we're still at work. I think we have no choice. Our job is to work for the people. Uh, I, I think this is going to be a challenge, but I think that the president himself has said that we've got to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, the Senate, Mitch McConnell and Senator Sarah have said we have to, and we have passed a bill, H.R. 3, on the House side. I think we could end up with two different versions. But I think every one of us, Republican and Democrat, have to do something about lowering the cost of prescription drugs. I got a prescription. I got my bills for the month. Um, I, my inhaler, the copay, was 300 some dollars. Oh and I, I, it, it like stunned me. And I've got good insurance. I, I keep thinking about that mother who told me about how she couldn't afford the price of the inhaler. I hadn't realized the copay had gone up that high because it was the first bill that I have gotten. And I'm luckier than most. I mean, it stuns me. But think about that mom working two jobs Mm -hmm. that's got a little girl that needs that medicine. It's prescription drug costs and visits and procedures as well. I'm not going to tell you that we can... I mean, I'm very worried about health care. I am somebody, I think we're going to, I, I have believe in universal health care. I think every person's got a right to affordable quality health care. The Medicare for all discussion has been totally by presidential candidates, some of who don't know what they're talking about, and everybody's afraid of it right now. And we're not going to be able to have a real conversation about what we have to do in this country until after this election. That's a fact. We should be doing, and I think we will still try to do in the House, the Affordable Care Act wasn't perfect. And we need to have what our vision is for the long term, is that everybody can go to the doctor when they need to go to the doctor, not have to worry about whether they can afford a test or their medicine. But we have people right now that did get access to insurance, who, but whose premiums are way too high. Their deductibles, <laughs> excuse me, their deductibles are way too yeah. high, and we've got to do something about it. But you asked me for the truth. The truth is we're still trying to repeal the, you know, affordable care, not we, I want to be, I'm trying not to be partisan today, <laughs> that it's not we, the Republicans, one of the first things they did was repeal the Affordable Care Act. We didn't let it happen. And we've got to protect people. We've got to protect healthy Michigan and the Medicaid issue. We cannot let them, they want to do block grants on Medicaid now that could end up hurting these programs that gave us healthy Michigan. But can we get it done this year? That's going to be a bigger challenge. I think we can get Lowering the cost of prescription. I was going to say the prescription drug issue. There's there there isn't anybody who says they don't want it. Now that, that of course doesn't mean that there's unanimity on how to do it, right? I mean, there's always this sort of push and pull that, about that, what you know. Everybody says, "Oh, we don't want to take insurance away from people with pre-existing conditions," and yet they keep voting on things or going to courts that do exactly what they say they don't want to do. I think the cost of prescription drugs is real. I will also tell you, though, Mitch McConnell said we could work on infrastructure. You know, we do, to quote the governor, not me, we need to fix the damn roads. <laughs> and it's getting better, not, I mean, it's getting worse, not better. And we've, you know, if we could do something, the Democrats in the House have released um, a, a framework that maybe we could do something on. Uh, and it's not just our roads and bridges, which we all know are bad, but broadband, fixing our schools. We've got to do things like that. And the other thing that the president or that Mitch McConnell said we could maybe do was protecting our natural resources, parks, parklands. I'm really proud of the fact that um, I've got a couple bills that are very bipartisanly sponsored. RAWA, which has the sportsmen's groups and all of that, and see the National Wildlife Foundation, LCV. You know, I'm bringing people together. We've got to do stuff like that. Um, and we got to do a lot of things to protect our environment. But can we get them done this year? I don't know. But yeah. I hope we can do the parkland. No, it's always resources. it's always sort of dicey in the election year anyway. Um, let's go to the phones here and start with Heather in Ferndale. Heather, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi. Um, first of all, Debbie, I want to offer my condolences on your loss. This must be a very hard day for you. Um, Thank you. But the... I, you know, Barr is not going to be in front of your Congress or the Judicial Committee until March 31st. That's so far away. They are doing 
so much damage to this country. Mm. And people are losing faith in that our elections are going to be safe and secure. Mm. Between Barr and McConnell around Trump, it, we're just in very scary times. And I feel like Congress needs to be more aggressive on this. Uh, Heather, thanks for the call and the and the comments. Of course, for the other listeners, Heather's talking about the Attorney General William Barr, who is the person who went and interfered in the sentencing proceedings for Roger Stone, presumably on the behest of of, of the president. He is now going to appear before House Judiciary, but as Heather points out, that's not happening until the end of, of next month, which I think makes people a little frustrated because this, I think she's right that things are happening so fast and so frequently that it seems like we're in a state of emergency when it comes to things like the rule of law. Well, we are in a state of emergency on the rule of law. And we can, I'm going to answer her question now, but we can talk about that down the road. Mm-hmm. I, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1, last year it was one of the first things that we did which addressed a number of the issues that you were concerned about uh i myself i mean i have been very clear uh that i'm worried about the russians trying to divide us their interference in this country uh our law enforcement agencies uh the fbi uh and others are warning us that we know that they are trying to do things i think that Each of the secretaries of states in this country are working very hard to make their system secure. Um, I'm somebody who introduced legislation which was included in H.R. 1 that would require paper ballots. I think we should be going back to paper ballots in every state. Keep saying that and I'm working towards that. Uh, What I'm, I I mean, I could get it, I'm as worried as you are. I wish I could say to you, oh, it's going to be okay. But we, because we are worried about it, we are being, we are doing everything we can to work with people across the country to watch what's happening, to make sure that systems are safe, systems are being protected. Secretary of State's Republicans and Democrats don't want to see that kind um, of chaos, that kind of people being worried. We've got lawyers that are setting up teams in every state because we know that voters are going to be challenged. We know we saw that last year that people were taken off the rolls. People were who had registered to vote were denied the right to vote. We are working on all of those kinds of issues. Um, the issue that I could, I, I'm worried about all of those, but the issue I can't get my arms around and uh, the one that scares me even the most is Facebook and social media, where we know they bought ads, they lied, uh, and th- they distort, they use it as a tool of misinformation. I'm asking everybody. I saw the, a Democratic or a Facebook posting this week that was claiming that I was doing something, and I, you know, I actually later had reason to believe it may have been a Democrat that was passing it on. We all have to be very careful to not pass on misinformation. The Russians and others are trying really hard to do that. Mm -hmm. And Twitter has said that they're not going to do it. Uh, But Facebook is not taking it down. And they were the biggest source last time. We have doctored videos that we know are doctored videos. They know are doctored videos. And they refuse to do anything about it. So not only do you have a right to be concerned, I am, in case you can't tell, my emotional level goes (laughs) up very high. We need to be worried. And every single one of us has got to work hard to protect this system and Secretary of States, I think, are doing their jobs that they can do. But all of us have to police Facebook and not let people get away with lying and bullying and disinformation. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. We're going to talk a little more about what's going on over at DOJ. And then we are going to talk about the Democratic presidential primaries just a few weeks before we vote here in Michigan. But does the whole system need an overhaul? Should we be doing this really differently? Stay with us on Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, a Democrat from Dearborn who represents Michigan's 12th congressional district in Congress. Uh, we're talking about what's going on in Washington, what's going on with presidential primaries, which started recently and will make their way to Michigan in March. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, Give us a call. Tell us what your reaction is to all of the things that are happening in Washington. Think of all the things that have happened just in the last few months uh, in the Capitol with regard to impeachment, the State of the Union, and now this story about the president interfering with sentencing guidelines in the case of one of his close allies. Uh, that's a lot. And uh, we'd love to know what you make of all of it, what you think Congress should be doing, perhaps, to rein in some of these things that the president and uh, the Republican majority is doing. Uh, also, uh, give us a call and tell us what you are thinking about the primaries. Are you paying attention even yet to the Democratic presidential contest? Uh, we've seen Iowa and New Hampshire go to the polls. South Carolina and Nevada are next. Michigan will go in March. Uh, is this the way we should be doing it? Do you think that makes sense, the way that this is ordered? Or do you think Michigan should play a different or more prominent role? Or do you think that Iowa and New Hampshire, which have had first crack at this for such a long time, maybe doesn't make a lot of sense. In other words, that those are states that aren't terribly representative of the rest of the country and maybe then should not lead off the voting and have such a profound influence on who's still around by the time they get to places like Michigan. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we go back to listeners, Debbie, I want to get your reaction to what we've seen so far in, in the primaries. It's been a little more chaotic than I thought. I think people anticipated, and it's been a little more uncertain. I think at this point, with, with two contests down, it, it seems really unclear what will happen in the next primaries. Sometimes that's okay. It happens. It happens every once in a while. But there does seem to be something particularly uncertain about how the Democrats will come or come together around a candidate who will do well in November against the president. So I have several different thoughts on this subject. I think each of the states needs to be discussed in their own context which is that Iowa did nothing to uh, give anybody confidence about election security. It was mishandled. Uh, It was a disaster, and it can't be said in any other way. Um, New Hampshire was a real election, uh, and it shows you that people have different feelings about different candidates. And um, so I feel good about the integrity of the election in New Hampshire and that we have a lot of voters who have different feelings and feel strongly about different candidates. But I will also tell you that I am more energized, I swore after 2008, when I joined Carl Levin in trying to change the presidential nominating Mm -hmm. system, which I believe to my very core must happen, that it was such an awful experience, I was never going to do it again. (laughs) And I'm back. And uh, (laughs) I I believe then and I believe now. They're two such small, disparate states shouldn't have the impact that they do. And you're saying, oh, these two states are, does it show that the system is? We have two states that don't represent the diversity of this country, don't represent the the, um, the politics, the understand the regions, and yet you're saying to me it's a disaster. Well, no, two small states voting doesn't send us any kind of message, and we've got to change the system. I believe that we need to, each region, each state should have an opportunity to go first every few elections. Sure. So we need a system. Is it a lottery? Is it a region, regional primary that lets every region have the opportunity? People need to realize that Iowa and New Hampshire, who are small states that don't represent the diversity of this country, uh, and diversity is not just um, it, it diversity is many different things sure. it's farmers it's manufacturing it's labor workers there are a lot of it's, things they don't they, have they they i mean iowa does have farmers but sure. um but 
you know, they don't have auto plants or they have some auto plants, but I mean, I'm just, every state's got its own issues. And presidential candidates live in those states for two years. Yes. You know, it's now Michigan never used to see presidential candidates because we didn't, now Donald Trump listened more than Hillary did four <laughs> years ago, but because nobody believed me when I said it's not just, I mean, I predicted Donald Trump could win Michigan and everybody thought that I was crazy. Mm-hmm. We're suddenly now state number one. We are going to be the New Hampshire primary of the general election and we're going to see candidates here. Yeah. But every state has that right. So I can remember in 2008, having this conversation with you. And you told me I was crazy, including on election night. <laughs> right. No, no, that's in, two, that's in 2016. Oh, I'm talking sorry. about in 2008 when we oh. were talking about the primary. Oh, the primary, the primary. And, and how screwed up the system was. And I remember there seeming to be sort of a critical mass formed around the they idea were, that we could do it differently. And then we, were, we moved up our primary and got in trouble for doing it. We didn't and, really and it get in fizzled. trouble. I want to... Senator Levin called me yesterday, and we are doing an op-ed for the New York Times, which my name's going to be on, but Senator Levin really wrote this. I mean, I agree with everything in there. And the, this fight I am going to take on, I'm going to do in Senator Levin's name, because he has seen this, this system as being broken for three to four decades. So I do this in his name, because he is someone that's really tried to do this. You have to start at the beginning of the game. You can't change the rules in the middle of it. So that's one of the key factors. Mm -hmm. But we did. Uh, The Republican Party chair in Michigan then with Saul Nunes agreed. We took it on in a very bipartisan way. Uh, We were prepared to fight it, to actually challenge. New Hampshire moved, we moved. And I'm not going to name names, but somebody put, I learned a lesson. I think I know politics, but you need to read every piece of legislation and a phrase was put in that a presidential candidate could remove their name. And President Obama took his name off the Michigan ballot. ballot, I remember that. And that we still had the the vote, but, and then they threatened, which is going to be a key part of this op-ed, that they would not seat our delegates, which, of course, the first thing President Obama did was to seat the Michigan delegates. They they try to use this threat. Well, no two small states, no state should have a lock on going first. Every state deserves to have that opportunity to have someone listen to their issues. Retail states, smaller states are a good opportunity for retail politics, but you can find that in other states. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to have a system... That so, gives every state that opportunity. So, do you think that that the combination of this, the the kind of chaos we saw in Iowa, which got a lot of people's attention, and the enhanced discussion about these states that that monopolize this this first in the nation primary and and caucus thing, do you think there's an opportunity? I mean, will we see it change before twenty twenty four? I I think there's an opportunity. I'm not. I will never say yes. This is going to change because it's there been are a lot long of things fight, that would but have I'm to fall never going to stop fighting for it until it does. That this is going to be. Senator Levin has done this, and I am right there at his side. A system has to change. These two states have a disproportional impact on who becomes the candidate, and we just need to have. I mean, every state deserves to have the right to candidates look and talk about their issues. We need a rotating system that gives every state that right, that opportunity. So, and it wouldn't be that hard. It's not that hard to come well, we're up gonna, with a way to I, do it. I've been talking to some of my Republican friends. We've got to do it in a bipartisan way. You can't do it in a on one, one side, party yeah. or the other. And we're working it. And I'm back. <laughs> right. Uh, Aaron on Twitter says, healthcare should be free not affordable. Why doesn't Debbie Dingell support Medicare for All? She I do. With su- thousand, I was going to say, you do support it. I am co-chair of the Medicare for All. <laughs> right. And uh, I, I have been, there is nobody stronger in the United States Congress. And just to be really clear, it. Um, my father-in-law was the author of Social Security. And he got called a communist and a socialist then. Yes, he did. And uh, he re- entered the very first version of Medicare for All was introduced in the early 40s by John Dingell introduced this every 
every session of Congress. And I want to make it really clear, I believe in Medicare for all. But I'm going to tell you that because of the way the presidential debate has been held this year, people are afraid of that discussion. So, you know, the first bill got introduced in the early 40s. We got Medicare, or Medicare, mm-hmm. not Medicare for all, in 1965. We have to talk to people. We have to educate them. We have to make them not afraid of a system. We talk to them about, there are a lot of lies out there. I think that if someone's sick, they should be able to go to the doctor, period, and not have to worry about whether they can afford it. But we have to, in the meantime, right now, while I'm trying to get it passed, I don't want anybody not to be able to go to the doctor. So yeah. let's, I'm tired of people playing games and saying she does it. I, I am the sponsor of, it is the Pramila Dingle bill that is in the House of Representatives. Yeah, and and I think that's an important point that while you're waiting for people to warm to the idea of that, and you've got a lot of people who don't support the idea of Medicare for all, or, or as you say, are afraid of it, that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be tweaking the system we have. The Affordable Care Act has lots of things that were good and are working, has lots of things that still need work. And working on that bill to perfect it doesn't necessarily mean you don't support something something else. Uh, again, Aaron, thanks for the, for the comment on Twitter. Let's go to Liz in Detroit on the phones. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good yeah. morning. Hey, go I ahead. have a couple of issues that I wanted to address. The first being in terms of the primaries. I, I have a problem with some of the candidates that we had, they couldn't even stay in until we got to the first primary. <laughs> I think that's that's a major issue too in terms of them having the money and the means to be able to stay in until you get to the to the first primaries. So that's a, another layer to the issue of primaries. My other issue is that I'm very concerned about none of the candidates I've heard speak about the inequities that we have in this country in terms of getting a $15 wage. If you have a $15 wage and you still have inequities in lending mm-hmm. and housing, we just had a report that came out about how students at HBCUs are paying much more money for loans. So we need to look at some of the inequities. I don't hear a lot of things, people or candidates or representatives talking about those inequities. So we can do the $15 minimum wage but if we don't address some of the other issues we have not covered mm. the entire issue okay so Thank liz you liz attention. i'm gonna before you go i'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit if you had to make a decision today in the democratic primary who would get your vote i don't know you're not sure yet <laughs> i'm not sure um I like Bernie because he's a fighter. I need i need to know somebody's gonna fight for me hmm. and they're gonna fight for the issues that i have so okay. I like him. I don't know. I, I'm concerned about his electability, but I'm concerned about any of the Democrats' electability. We, as I said in the very beginning of my comment, we've gotten to the point where I don't even. I'm not that excited about any of our picking because mm-hmm. uh, and social media is part of it because they 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 take candidates and and, and social media gets a hold of one candidate and they they're they're negated at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't tell you that. I can tell you that I will support the nominee. But I don't know if I will be as excited as I would about others. Okay, Liz, I really appreciate the call and the the questions. As we get closer to the primary and you start to make decisions, you should call us back and let us know who is going to get your vote and and why. Debbie Dingle, I'm going to put the same question to you. If you had to go to the polls tomorrow? I've been very clear that I'm going to support who the people of the 12th District support because I think we've got to bring people together. Uh, the one thing I would say is that I have heard both Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren talk in very clear terms about the issues that you uh, are talking about, to a lesser extent, some of the other candidates. And there are people, I mean, Rashida gets attention for talking about them, so I'm going to say that right here. But I have actually very much talked about a number of those issues. We don't get the attention. House members don't get the kind of attention that a presidential candidate does. Uh, Rashida's got a number of bills in on a number of these things. Mm-hmm. We all, um, I have. She's got a couple passed in the House yeah, already she has. this year. That, yeah. That have and so I think some, it doesn't get the attention. You know, that's part of the problem. How do you get attention to some of these issues? Uh, uh, they are important issues. Uh, we've got a, you know, I'm in my district and I, uh, for, I actually talked about one of the mothers that has impacted me more than anything. And I talk about 
her all the time as a mother that's working two jobs, has two children, and one of her children has asthma. Um, but it, we do need to talk about it. It people, it is these people that pay the most. It's one of the concerns I have as we talk about every bill. You talk about global climate change, and we need. I've got a bill in there that would by 2050 make us carbon neutral. Uh, but I also worry that that price not be on those who can least afford it. We need to worry about that in almost every public policy action we're doing. Who pays the price? Yeah. Um, so I am very worried about it, but some of the candidates are talking about it. I am friends of most of the candidates that remain, um, and I trust the people of the 12th District, and I think that the vote that I, if I go to the convention, uh, we don't— Members of Congress do not have Don't, a vote. Yeah. Let me make that really clear on the first ballot uh, that I will cast my vote the way that the people of my district cast because I represent them. Okay. All right. Debbie Dingle, Congresswoman from Dearborn who represents Michigan's 12th district. It is always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Come back soon. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yes. All right. Up next, we're going to speak with the attorneys who are suing the city over what they call illegal tax assessments. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Attorneys and activists are suing the city of Detroit over its overassessments of thousands of properties in the years following the Great Recession. It's an issue they say contributed to people losing their homes to tax foreclosure. The lawsuit claims the city failed to notify tens of thousands of homeowners of their right to appeal their assessment notices, meaning they had no time to make their case. This comes after a study that found that between 2009 and 2015, a majority of homes in Detroit were overassessed. And it comes after a Detroit News investigation that said the city overtaxed homeowners by at least $600 million in the years following the recession. Joining us now to talk more about this lawsuit is Bernadette Atuana, who is a professor at Chicago Kent College of Law. Bernadette, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Also with us is Christopher Berry. He's a professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. Christopher, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you. And Sam Schoenberg is an attorney with Goldman, Ismail, Tomaselli, Brennan, and Baum Law Firm. Sam, welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be here. Thanks. So, Sam, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you're the lead attorney on this lawsuit. Talk about what the claim here is uh, and what you hope to achieve in in court. Sure. So the, the claim is about constitutional due process. And the basic issue there is the U.S. and Michigan constitutions guarantee due process of law if the government's going to take your property. And that includes notice and an opportunity to be heard. And in 2017, when the city of Detroit was sending out its property tax assessment notices, uh, which it had to do uh, by law, they had to give people an opportunity to appeal. Every single notice stated that the deadline to appeal was February 18th, 2017. And data that we have shows that the city didn't send any residential property notice until just four days before that deadline on February 14th. So this effectively denied every Detroit homeowner the opportunity to appeal their assessments that year. And this is especially impactful for those who've been systematically overassessed or may have fallen delinquent or faced property tax foreclosure because uh, they didn't have a chance to appeal and because the city was assessing them at too high rates. And we should add that Go the, ahead, the data um, that Sam is talking about was acquired. Sugar Law um, did a pre-litigation, a FOIA litigation, and what what they got is there's a company called Renkim that's in charge of sending out the assessment notices. Mm -hmm. And what we have is mailing data right. that says exactly post office, what post yeah. office data that says exactly what date the um, the notices were mailed on. So it's incontrovertible and we've actually given it to your program so you can post yes. post the mailing data on your website. It's going to be can, on our website so people can see what that th these dates 
uh, are indisputable. That, That's right. Because that we want no confusion. Um, Alvin Horn has already responded saying, uh, you know, the date was they mailed it out on time again. It's let's now do your your. Uh, he said, she said, look at the mailing data. So so in in the lawsuit, uh, talk about what you're seeking uh, as remedy for for this violation of due process. Sure. So it's it's a few different things. First, going forward, we want to make sure that the city ensures that these notices are sent out on time, have clear appeal deadlines with enough time for people to, if they want to, lodge an appeal and potentially get their property tax assessment lowered. Going back, this was a systematic denial of due process to every homeowner in 2017. So we want to get every homeowner who should have had a chance to appeal in 2017 a chance to do so now because they didn't have that before. We're also hoping for those who were overassessed that year or faced delinquency or are subject to property tax foreclosure, which with it comes with a host of fines and fees and interest payments, we're hoping for money damages to uh, redress that imbalance. And and uh, when you talk about that that money um, uh, that money sort of payback, what what kind of numbers are we talking about there? It's it, that's going to be a complicated calculation uh, based in part on some of the work that Bernadette and Chris have done on uh, how to properly calculate these assessments, but. The, the evidence is pretty clear that a lot of Detroiters were being overassessed. And even in 2017, when the city completed its first wholesale reassessment of all residential properties for the first time in more than 50 years, mm-hmm. uh, even then, a lot of people were still being assessed at rates that were illegal, c- according to the the cap set in the Michigan Constitution. Uh, Christopher Barry, uh, your work has been about sort of trying to, to to put all this together in terms of what happened and and why. Talk about what your study shows us. Sure. So uh, first, I want to say I'm not directly involved in the in the lawsuit. I'm a person who researches property taxes, right. and at my center, we began in Chicago a few years ago, and have then uh, broadened our research nationally, and I've just finished a study on Detroit where we were investigating whether the reappraisal process, which many have said has fixed the problems of overassessment in Detroit, whether in fact that is true, and Mm -hmm. what we find pretty clearly is that it hasn't, and that while average assessments have gone down a bit since the reappraisal, uh, the assessments on the lowest-valued homes have not, and that a majority of homes that are low-valued, and here I'm talking about $20,000 or less in sale price, continue to be assessed in excess of the constitutional limit, which is 50% of their value. Uh, so there have been improvements on average, but not for the people who need them most. Mm-hmm. And and why is that happening? I mean, that's one of the things that I think comes out of these stories is, what's the explanation for the city's either inability or unwillingness to do this in a, in a, in a fair way? Well, I think we cannot know for sure the precise answer to that question because the assessor's office has not been completely transparent about exactly how they are producing the assessments. So we can't exactly know what they're doing wrong without knowing what they're doing. Uh, however, I will say it is a it, the assessor's job is a hard one, and getting these numbers right uh, takes some skill and. If we had some sense of what they're doing, we might be able to, you know, I'm sure there's, there's ways to, to do it better. But the reason it's hard is because often knowing exactly why some homes are priced more than others requires a really good data. And the assessor's office may just not have that data. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bernadette, one of the things that I think is, is really notable about all this is, of course, it becomes clear as a result of the massive devaluation of property that happens in the city as a result of the recession. And of course, that's worse here in Detroit than it is in maybe any other uh, any other city that, that, that you can think of. Um, what has the city said uh, to you about how this happened and why the assessments were not re- reduced to, to, to reflect that, that loss in value? I mean, it's, it's this uh, uh, strange and cruel uh, double punch, right? You lose most of the value in your property, which is which is something that's happened to lots of people in the city. And then you are also overassessed for taxes, and in some cases to the point where you can't even pay those taxes, and you lose your house. I mean, it it, it really is unfathomable what happened. What does the city say about why this wasn't handled differently? Right. And so in 2008, after the Great Recession, we all know that housing prices plummeted nationally. 
but they took a, an especially deep dive in Detroit. And at the time, housing prices were taking a deep dive. That's the very same time that the D Detroit was going through the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. And so the assessment division did not have the resources it needed to do what it was required to do by the Michigan State Constitution, which is to assess all houses at no more than 50% of the property's market value. What lots of people know is that Detroit was, uh, you know, had an emergency manager, but what lots of Detroiters don't know is that the assessment division was taken over by the State Tax Commission because of the disarray in that office. Mm -hmm. And they only got back control in August of 2017 after they did that citywide reassessment to try and actually fix the problem. And I want to be very clear that I commend the city for that citywide reassessment that they hadn't done for 60 years to get the data right. Um, and, and there has been, and I also want to say that there was um, dramatic improvement. Uh, and again, I want to commend the city for that. But again, with the study that Professor Barry is just discussing today that he just released and can be is available on his center's website, says that even after the reassessment, we are seeing lower valued homes still being assessed in violation of the Michigan State Constitution. And yesterday we actually had a meeting uh, with Alvin Horn, with the representatives from the State Tax Commission and Wayne County Equalization and presented the study to them uh, to say, look, this is evidence of continued overassessment. What are you going to do about it? Hmm. And their response to us was quite clear, which is uh, they, they, they said pretty clearly that all we're going to do is what we are currently doing. Uh, and so we Which is trying to reassess. No, which is or? what they're currently doing in terms of uh, because what they're currently doing is pr is producing this uh, inequality for the low valued homes. But they basically made it clear they intend uh, they don't intend to do anything differently. And so we asked them, well, if you um, kind of don't believe our study, we encourage them to do a study of their own. Uh, and they, so then it says that they're not now over-assessing they, they They're making the claim that they're still not over-assessing, but that claim is not based on anything. It's not based on a study. And they, they said that they are in the meeting yesterday that they have no intention of doing a study if they don't believe our study. That's mm. where our problem is. Mm. They, are very, they are very fixated on getting the average assessment within an acceptable range, the average, and, and that they, they are required by law only – to look at the average, and therefore, if there's some people who are above that average and some people who are below, which is you know always going to be the case, uh, their position is that they are not required by law to look at that. They only are looking at the average, and so I, you know, that was my understanding of their response: is we're going to continue doing what we're doing, which is focus on getting this average within range, which is going to leave a lot of people. Uh, still not mm. satisfied. To be very clear, the Michigan State Constitution says no property, any property, right. should it be assessed. Talk about average. You got it's, it, right, mm -hmm. um, Sam? I want to get you to talk some about again the the remedy for this and the the dollar side of it, um, and, and maybe Bernadette, you can you can uh, pitch in on this as well. So when when we collect property taxes in the city, it is the city that does the assessing. Uh, somebody else does the collecting, and then the money goes to lots of different governments. So the city of Detroit gets, I think, 38% of property tax. The schools get 43% of it. You have Wayne County Community College. You have the library. You have lots of people sort of getting a piece of that. So if the idea is to try to repay some of that money, who's responsible? So the lawsuit names not just the city of Detroit, but also Wayne County is among the defendants. Wayne County, right. Uh, that's the other uh, entity that gets money off of right. uh, so, property tax. You know, as far as who pays, the defendants that we've sued, we believe are responsible for the denial of constitutional due process this year. And so those entities are ultimately the ones responsible for uh, paying any remedy that would be owed. Um, where exactly they get that from is yeah. not necessarily I mean, part of the litigation. Right. I was going to say that's not really uh, your responsibility to, to identify, but but it's a question. I mean, where would you get? Let's say it's a couple hundred million dollars uh, in overassessment, uh, even if it's $50 million in overassessment. Bernadette, where, where, where would the city, where would the school district, these are all very cash-strapped uh, government authorities, where would they get that kind of cash? Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, as Sam is saying, Detroit didn't get into this mess all by itself, right? We've got, uh, so it's, uh, 
alongside Detroit, we've, we're suing the county and the state. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to make clear is the main person who's benefiting from these unconstitutional tax assessments and the resulting illegally inflated property taxes is Wayne County, who charges 18 percent interest on, on uh, delinquent taxes. Right. That's um, right. And so people don't know, again, when Detroit was going through emergency management, Wayne County was in a financial emergency and they used money from the delinquent tax revolving fund to to cover their gap to keep them solvent. to keep them solvent. So Wayne County stayed solvent off of the backs of delinquency and foreclosure in Detroit. So one of the claims of the lawsuit is an unjust enrichment claim. So you're asking where the money needs to come from. That's exactly where the money needs to come from. So you think the county should be be responsible for paying that? Well, in our lawsuit, we have, again, listed them as a defendant, and the claim is an unjust enrichment claim. They were unjustly enriched. Okay. All right. Bernadette Atuanene, Christopher Berry, and Sam Schoenberg. Thanks for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. That's going to do it for us this week. I will be back on Monday. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 Detroit uh, WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.